my name is John Samples. I work here at Cato. This is going to be a little different format on the book forum. We're going to go straight to our, uh, our guest speaker. We'll speak for about five minutes or so, then to our, to our book author. Uh, our guest speaker, as you know, is Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Before he begins speaking, I did want to mention he has a new book out, too, called Government Bullies, which you can get at your bookstore online. So, we'll get, But we are going to have a book forum here. So go out and get the book and then bring it back. He'll sign it. You can ask him questions about it. But let's get started now. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I uh, read Matt Kibbe's book, Hostile Takeover, a couple of months ago now and was glad to uh, endorse the principles of it. I think one of the things that's uh, great about it is, is that uh, the Tea Party movement was sort of depicted as a, a bunch of uh, angry white guys yelling at their TV. And there maybe there is a little bit of that, but I think we're more complicated than that and that there is an intellectual underpinning to the Tea Party movement. And I think Matt's book really exemplifies that. I think the other thing that's, um, you know, you get from uh, Matt's book and that I've learned about Matt is that, you know, there's sort of a conspiracy out there of Grove City college graduates, right? And they're taking over Washington. We have four of them in my office, so be careful about Grove City. I think they're populating the ranks of the free market movement. I uh, went to Grove City when I was in high school with my dad, who was there speaking with Hans Senholt. So I know firsthand about the, the Grove City experiment and the experience. But uh, I think with Hostile Takeover, what, what, what I came, uh, came across and got out of it is basically that uh, it's not just a reactionary movement out there. The T-Marty movement is more complicated than that. It is not an astroturf movement. It's not a movement that is hollow and without support really comes from the grassroots, but it comes from a renewed respect for the Constitution. And it's not all just a Republican movement either. I often said that the Tea Party movement is equal parts chastisement to both parties. And if anything, the Tea Party movement really arose out of a criticism of the Republican Party. That doesn't mean a lot of them are voting Democrat, but it, it, it arose out of people who were unhappy with Republicans for not fulfilling what they said they ostensibly stand for. One of the big issues when I began was the bank bailouts. You know, we, we got the bank bailouts because of Republicans. We also got Republicans who said that in order to keep my principles, I must give up my principles. You know, in order to save the free market, I must give up on believing in the free market. And I think that's what motivates uh, a lot of the folks from the Tea Party, some in a more visceral way and some in a more intellectual way. But uh, I'm proud of what Matt's put forward in uh, Hostile Takeover, and I wish him the best of luck. Thank you. This is indeed Hostile Takeover, the book we're meeting here today. Uh, we'll have copies outside, you can, and Matt will be willing to sign it later as we, after we go to lunch. But for now, let me begin by introducing Matt Kibbe. He's the president and CEO of FreedomWorks which, as you may know, is a nationwide organization that recruits, educates, and trains uh, volunteer activists to fight for less government, lower taxes, and more freedom. He has appeared on just about every kind of media to bring this message to Americans. He's also co-author with Dick Army of an earlier best-selling book, Give Us Liberty, a Tea Party Manifesto, and a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal. The other side is Matt's academic uh, background. He's a former chief of staff in the House of Representatives and a senior economist who has also edited academic journals and, uh, and worked in economics. So I'm delighted to welcome Matt to the Cato Institute to talk about his book. Thank you. It's, it's an honor to be back at Cato. I have to ask, uh, how many of you guys consider yourself Tea Partiers? Anybody? All right. Um, how many of you guys consider yourself libertarians? Any Ron Paul guys in the house? <laughs> Any objectivists in the house? Is it, hopefully that's not a controversial question. <laughs> Sorry, I had to tell that joke. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I sort of consider myself all of those things, and I don't consider that to be contradictory. And if you think about what the Tea Party is, it's really a mashup of a lot of different ideas built around a basic set of common principles. Common principles like 
The government shouldn't spend money it doesn't have. Common principles like the Constitution, the rules of the game actually matter, and you should treat everybody just like everybody else. And the idea that the government shouldn't get involved in things like health cares and deciding which car you should drive and, and stuff like that. And I know for some people in Washington, these are really radical ideas. They're scary. But I, I'm here to tell you that I think that is the small L libertarian center of America today. If you look at what independent voters are worried about today, if you look at what Tea Party activists are worried about, um, it's quite the same thing. It's quite the same thing. This book is about what I consider, from just from a political science perspective, um, perhaps the most exciting and monumental clash, certainly in my lifetime, because you have all of these forces of disintermediation, all these forces of decentralization, um, multiple sources of information online, ability to connect with each other. We now get to vote, thumbs up or thumbs down, on whether or not you like Justin Bieber's latest haircut. That's power. That's real power. We get to decide for ourselves when, where, how we get information in our RSS feed. We get to buy things that we never got to buy before, what, what's been called the long tail on the Internet. Um, even people with my bizarre tastes in music and literature, in one click I can buy an original copy of Hayek's Road to Serfdom and the entire collected works of the Grateful Dead 1972 tour. That's what freedom is all about right there. And you have this disintermediation. Everything in our lives, it seems, is more about us. It's more about the choices we make. We, we are utterly liberated from the old mothership corporations that used to hire us at age 21 all the way until we got that gold-plated watch. And we were dependent on their under, underfunded pension system. It's not like that anymore. You go to monster.com. You don't like your boss? You think he's a jackass? You in minutes can find other options. It's a very competitive environment. It's very empowering. And this is true in almost every aspect of our lives, except when it comes to this town, except when it comes to politics. My friends, uh, Nick Gillespie and Matt Welsh, called the Republican and Democratic parties a duopoly, two very similar versions of the same thing. And it's certainly true when you think about all the institutions that are deciding and trying to decide for us what our health care is going to look like, what car we drive, every aspect for pushing us into one-size-fits-all top-down systems. This, from a political science perspective, this is fascinating. And the theory of this book is that all of these liberating forces have empowered the shareholders in the American enterprise to now know what's going on inside of the walls of the buildings. We know what's going on inside of Russell. We know what's going on inside the Ways and Means Committee that used to be lined with lobbyists on the outside making those tweaks to that bill, those carve-outs to that, the, the latest tax bill that we as the citizens, we as the shareholders, didn't find out about for years. It was a done deal by the time that the rest of us figured out that we had been screwed by a dirty collusion between committee chairman and some crony capitalist, maybe a public sector union representative. It was always the insiders because they controlled the information, they controlled the conversation, and we in economics would call the rest of us rationally ignorant, right? And rationally ignorant simply means that you didn't have the time and the money to find out what these guys were doing to you. That's all changed. Think about it from a public choice perspective. All of the advantages of inside information, all of the advantages of hiring the best lobbyists in town to show up at Ways and Means has been diminished as we as individuals get that information in real time. A great example of this I talk about in the book is when Nancy Pelosi posted the Obama health care bill online, you had this fascinating decentralized process by which thousands, if not millions of people, started to parse a very complex piece of legislation, share that information, and by the time they got to the August town hall meetings, the guy at the microphone who had stood up and shared this information with, with millions of anonymous friends 
literally knew more than Arlen Specter did. Arlen Specter didn't know a, an ounce of what was in that bill, but his audience did. That's power. That's fundamentally different than anything we've seen in the past. So you have this clash, and those of you at the Cato Institute might, might recognize the following sort of quote that Frederick Hayek once asked. How is it possible that so many millions of people with their unique knowledge, their unique perspective, that knowledge of time and place, understanding what their families need, understanding what they're trying to accomplish in their lives, how is it that so many dispersed people come together in a market and create something that's better than themselves? He asked that question when he was trying to explain to John Maynard Keynes why it was that imaginary macroeconomic constructs such as aggregate demand couldn't supplant all of this knowledge creation from the bottom up. But when you listen to Barack Obama today, when he stands in such unfortunate timing, when he stands in front of the newly financed, constructed Solyndra facility just two months before it goes bankrupt, and he stands there and says with a certitude that should disturb everybody, I know what's better. I got the smartest guys in the room together, and we are certain that this is the future of energy in America. This is the future of energy in the world. I know that green energy is the right thing to do because I talk to the smartest people at the Department of Energy, and they assure me that it's true. He said that to all of you. Hayek called this a fatal conceit, right? How could he know? How would you ever be able to outguess the millions and millions of people and the billions of energy consumers and all of the producers in global markets and all the countries like China that are competing with us? It takes a really smart guy to figure that out. Some would argue that that's arrogant even. But that's the clash, and that is a classic central planner's attitude towards things. You couldn't possibly let freedom work because it would devolve into chaos. There's no way to coordinate markets. Um, apply that same clash to political strategy. In Kentucky, the experts said that now Senator Rand Paul didn't have a chance, that all of the old rules of politics, including the support of the Republican establishment, the money, the endorsements, the name ID, that was the key. But something happened, right? Freedom happened. All of these people sharing a, a set of values and a set of goals spontaneously organized to produce what has emerged in 2010, and I would argue to this day, one of the most potent get-out-the-vote machines in the history of the United States. Nobody directed it. Nobody, there was no central committee that said, now we shift from protesting to get out the vote. You Tea Partiers, did anyone send you that memo? No. You said to yourself, what do we need to do next? And you started talking to your neighbors, and you started talking to your Facebook friends and you started organizing, you started getting the tools you needed to figure out how to do something that you've probably never done before. How do you found in yard signs? How do, you, how do you get to your neighbors and make sure that they show up to vote? And it wasn't just Kentucky. It wasn't just Utah with Senator Mike Lee. But you had again and again and again the old rules of politics, money, name ID, endorsements from Washington, D.C., being trumped by candidates who didn't have the money, they didn't have the name ID, but they had a shared set of values that they shared with a community of people that were doing something that they'd never done before. That's the new paradigm. And we saw it just recently in Texas with the election of Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was outspent three to one. Ted Cruz was given a 0% chance of winning when he got in the race. And of course, incumbent uh, for life, Senator Dick Luger from Indiana also discovered that all of the old rules don't apply anymore. There's something going on, and that's power. And it's so powerful that even Van Jones is trying to figure out what's going on. I, I highly recommend, does everyone knows who Van Jones is? Former Green Jobs czar, um, really famous as, as one of the most important community organizers on the left. 
And he gave a speech in 2010 at Netroots Nation, which is the epicenter of progressive social organizing. Um, a lot of very tech-savvy people are there. And he was frustrated, and he asked this question out loud. How is it possible, speaking of the Tea Party, that so many rugged individualists can act collectively? He doesn't get it. How, how could that possibly happen? Because collectivists act collectively, and rugged individualists seemingly will do anything to anybody to get where they need to go, and it's all about them. They don't care about anybody else. They probably don't even talk to anybody else. And he's frustrated, and I wanted to, I wanted to actually quote this because I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, Van Jones, the community organizer, is trying to figure out how to recreate the Tea Party on the left. And he says to the group that the fundamental flaw of, of the 2008 coalition was that it was organized around a person. It was organized around Barack Obama. And he says, people let you down. Kind of an understatement from my perspective. <laughs> but he says, we can no longer rely on a single charismatic individual. But principles are enduring and values are enduring. And it's time for us not to just have a charismatic reader, leader, but a charismatic network. That's the genius of the Tea Party. If Michelle Bachman and Sarah Palin and Dick Armey had a press conference tomorrow declaring that the Tea Party is over, it wouldn't be over because it's built on a set of values. It has nothing to do with those people. It has nothing to do with leaders. It's a leaderless movement from the bottom up. Even Van Jones gets that. But here's, here's the beauty of this. We're streaming live here, and, and my book gives away all the secrets of the Tea Party as best as I can figure them out. Um, our strategy is built on freedom. We think freedom works, right? And we think that voluntary association amongst free people based on a set of values produces something that's far greater than any individual from the top down could plan. And Van Jones is going to try to recreate that. Barack Obama is going to try to recreate that. The Republican Party is going to try to recreate that. But they can't possibly do it because they like order. They like order from the top down. They like hierarchies. They like czars. They like dictates. If we let this community continue to evolve and emerge, I think we have a strategic opportunity to achieve the goals that everybody in this room has fought for and shared for quite some time. And that, to me, makes this the most exciting period of my life. Thank you. Thank you very uh, much, Matt. Uh, Senator Paul has to leave, but we're going to have a period of questions and answers here. Uh, please raise your hand and give us your name and your affiliation if you wish to give that. Uh, and also wait for the microphone because we want everybody in the room to be able to hear it. And then also you might mention if you want to direct your uh, question to one or the other of our speakers, please feel free to do so. So we have questions? Lady in the middle here. The microphone is on its way. Right here in the middle, down front. Right there. Talk. Rosalind Lacey McLennan, uh, DCTheaterScene.com. I'm a theater reviewer freelance writer. Um, I wanted to ask, well, I don't, Mr. Keeby or Mr. Paul, how can we get rid of the Federal Reserve? Uh, and I'm just reading this in the uh, Cato, this Cato uh, information here, or cap the growth of the expansion of the money supply at 3%. I mean, it seems to me that that's the source of it's been the source of government power since 1913. Thank you for the but, question. Yeah. Senator Paul? Well, we're trying, and one of the baby steps we're trying is to audit the Federal Reserve as the first thing. We passed it in the House, every Republican and 100 Democrats. There's one person stopping a vote on it right now, and you may know him. Uh, and if you'll send him an email, Harry Reid. 
and asking for a vote. With a vote, there's not a guarantee we win on audit the Fed, but we have a chance of winning. He won overwhelmingly in the House. I asked him again about this last night, but we were sort of having words on something else. So I don't think I'm in his best graces right now. But if a million people send an email to Harry Reid, he might. Philosophically, he's been with us. In 1995, he says he's been for auditing the Fed since 1987. He gave an extended speech in 2010 when Sharon Angle challenged him in debate, said she was for auditing the Fed. He said, so am I. So I think we have a chance with him on audit the Fed. Where you go from that to get rid of the Fed, I think I would go another baby step forward, and some may say it's a baby step or a significant step. I would limit the power of the open market committees with the next thing I would do in a step towards trying to control uh, the Fed. I think that interest rates or the price of money needs to fluctuate with the market, and in doing so, we would have the information feedback loop that causes the maintenance of balance that you need in a marketplace. Without that, you have enormous disruptions. Um, Matt? No, I would just say that uh, this, this whole dynamic of more transparency and more information, I think, is ultimately the death knell of the Fed because that talk about it, an insular institution that thrives on secrecy. If people know what they're doing, they don't like it. And that's why auditing is so important. But even without, uh, even with the partial audit that we already had, um, it's amazing to me how many people across America are completely fluent on QE1, QE2, QE3, QE4. This is a new thing, and people have self-educated. Um, audit the Fed is now part of the Republican platform, and it was Tea Party activists and Ron Paul activists who drove the policy change. So now it's now it's considered Republican doctrine. That's that's a big deal. Um, but I think ultimately this 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 bottom up independence is how we force that. Another question, gentleman on the aisle over here. Good afternoon. My name is Dave Goldberg. My wife Kay and I are nobody special. Uh, we are the grassroots Tea Party people from Kentucky. All right. We were some of the original people behind Senator Paul, who you see in front of you. Uh, my question for Matt and for Senator Paul is, uh, Matt, I had a chance to read the first few chapters of your book. I've not completed it. But in your book, you talk about the current situation where the, the payment of interest is 10% of revenues which come into the United States government. We've done a projection indicating a 2.2% increase in revenues over the next five years. If we, by any weird chance, can keep the debt to go just from 16 to 20 trillion, the interest rates go to 3%. Therefore, what occurs is that for every dollar that comes into the government, 24 cents goes to just pay the debt. I'd like your opinion of what you think may happen in that situation. Um, bad things, really. <laughs> Really bad things, and there's there's three things. There's the a slight increase in the artificially low interest rate creates real havoc with the federal government's debt payments. Um, the lack of growth plays real havoc in the increase in the debt, and the fact that we've been spending like drunken sailors. You've got to deal with all three of those things at once, and I think it's a much more difficult situation than than Ronald Reagan inherited. But you can see see the analogy. Um, we're counting on Senator Paul to fix this for us. When you look at what interest rates can or might do, I think for each point in interest that rises, we add a trillion dollars in payments over 10 years or about $100 billion a year. Many people are sort of mapping this out and talking about how they're worried about it. Peter Schiff talks about what if interest rates go to 5%. It's alarming what happens. Now, the only good news about it is uh, if there is a silver lining is this squeezing is going to precipitate some reforms. You will have to reform entitlements. And I tell every group that comes to me with their hands out and says, I want this, I need this program, I need this money. I say, you have to reform entitlements or there'll be no other money. There really is no other extra money for national defense, for any discretionary spending. It's all going to be consumed by entitlements. So we are going to fix entitlements one way or another. The age will have to rise. I think we will have to means test the entitlements. It's coming one way or another. Um, I wish there were a libertarian angle to this that we were going to have uh, 
you know, private accounts or some privatization. I don't know if we're getting there unless we change over quite a few faces. But whether we change Congress or not, the entitlements are going to have to be reformed because they're going to consume everything. Another question? Uh, gentleman in the middle there. We can get him the... Good morning. Uh, Judson England with Laissez-Faire Books. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for all that you guys do. Huge fan, and I, I really support you, and thank you. Uh, my question is, if you could give me an optimistic outlook if Obama re or wins the election in November. I mean, is it time for me to move? or? <laughs> you want us to lie to you. <laughs> give me a, the greatest lie you can. <laughs> Good. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that, that our, our strategy for our super PAC has always focused on changing the makeup of the, of the Senate and not just firing Harry Reid, which we think is essential, but also making sure that races like the Texas race, like the Indiana race, change the philosophical composition of what will be the Republican majority. And there was recently, uh, well, not so recent anymore, about six months ago, Ron Johnson ran for a leadership position and lost to the establishment pick by just three votes in the Senate Republican caucus. That is a good proxy for where we are right now. If we elect guys like Connie Mack in Florida, guys like Josh Mandel, not all of these guys are as good as Mike Lee and Rand Paul, but the center of gravity fundamentally shifts and I think you have a functioning majority in the Republican caucus. The energy comes from there. We've never had an activist pro-market Senate before so this is a new thing. Gentleman right there on the aisle. I'm gonna run after Thank you. Question. My name is Eric Kinjemi. I'm a member of the Institute of Managerial Accountants. And I'd like to answer your question, last question of the book, what, what will you do? And me, personally. <clears throat> I would believe that uh, it's important to restore proportional representation as a part of the bottom-up strategy to uh, shift the balance of power from a centralized federal government to a unified uh, citizen-based organization. So. What do you think about that's the question? Um, the, the, the whole point of this book is that we as libertarians, we that believe that the government's gotten out of control, it is our responsibility first. If you want to sit around and bitch about politicians, you better figure out what you're going to do differently to take that responsibility. And I think that's the ethos of the Tea Party. We, we took that responsibility first. I'm gonna have to run. Thank you very much for letting me participate. Good morning. Um, I'm Marlene Erdman, and um, I have a question about presidential privilege. It seems that there have been 900 presidential privileges, maybe over that by today, that President Obama has taken. And so my questions are, uh, I understand the legality of that, but do we want to limit that? Um, can we limit that? Um, and how, how would that affect possibly the question from the gentleman from Kentucky about the interest rate. Um, I came across a quote this morning that um, from Abraham Lincoln that said, liberty doesn't mean doing whatever I want. And it just appears to me that the 900 presidential privileges are doing whatever he wants. Yeah. Well, there's there's been a dramatic uh, erosion of the rules, if you will, and I'm talking about informal rules, not necessarily just what the, what the Constitution dictates, and Barack Obama has run roughshod, um, expanding executive power, and it's, it's very inconsistent, I think, with what the founders intended. It certainly didn't start with Barack Obama, um, but you see over time, with the, with the Bush administration and the Obama administration, starting with FDR, the dramatic use of Schedule C bureaucrats, we call them czars now, I don't, it's hard to figure out how that ever became acceptable, and midnight executive orders and, and all of these privileges, there used to be an informal constraint on that. It was understood that the, 
prerogative was with the legislative branch. And when you read Obama's lawyer's legal opinions on these things, he's basically saying to Congress, screw you, I'm going to do it. How are you going to stop me? Um, I don't know how to fix that. It has to be fixed from the bottom up. It starts with grassroots accountability that elects legislators that will actually do the oversight that they're required by the Constitution to do. That doesn't happen now. Um, it, it starts with uh, electing activist senator, senators and congressmen that actually want to restore that balance of power. It, it's got to happen. I know we're being joined by uh, an audience on Facebook, too. If we, the, uh, those people have any questions, you can relay them in, and we'll be happy to uh, consider them here. Uh, gentleman in front, in front seat. Uh, Roman Bueller with the uh, Madison Coalition. Um, for the next 54 days, we're going to worry about which new politicians we send to Washington. On the 55th day, we're going to start worrying what do those politicians do. And my question to Matt is, is there a possibility of mobilizing this new grassroots coalition that's come up through the Tea Party and come up through Ron Paul, not to lobby members of Washington, the Washington establishment, to give away power, which is hard, but to direct their attention to state legislators to get them to take power away from Washington? And your thoughts on whether or not states might be able to, if they mobilized and worked together, force Congress to propose some kinds of constitutional amendments that would restrict state power? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. And I think uh, uh, Tea Partiers, probably a lot of people in this room are already working on that. And what's, what's interesting about this model, this bottom-up model, that's based on a set of values and, and people connected through social media like Facebook is it's very sustainable. It doesn't go away the day after the election the way an old traditional campaign would. If you spend a money, bunch of money on TV ads, the day after the election you're spent, you have nothing to show for it, and thus you have no way of mobilizing a constituency to make sure that, that people actually do what they said they were gonna do that the whole key to this thing is not electing politicians at all. It has nothing to do with electing politicians. It has to do with creating a constituency that is going to insist on accountability and that they know what's going on and they know when to act. That's the revolution that's going on here. It's not, it's not even the election of, of all these uh, constitutionally conservative senators. The gentleman right behind Roman had his hand up. Uh, Gerald Schneider, unaffiliated. Uh, Monday will be another anniversary for the Constitution. And uh, I guess it's the 225th. Outside of the activists, people like ourselves who are involved in this, how much do you think the American people in general care about the Constitution? I think they care a lot more than you probably think they do. And I think there's been an explosion of uh, learning and searching and discovering of, of the American values that created this country over the last three years. I write about it in my book. If you didn't get it in high school and you didn't get it in college, um, you've now gone out and gotten it for yourself. You, you know this, every Tea Party activist I've ever met usually carries a copy of the Constitution with them and they can quote from it. And they can not only quote from that, but they understand the, a lot of the deliberations that led to it. Um, I think if you go back, and I did for the writing of this book, if you go back and, and look at what the founders were telling us, they made it very clear that the Constitution wasn't the key. The key was the willingness of free people to defend the Constitution. And that's what we're doing today. Um, I, think, I think people now in the streets, they quote Hayek, they talk about QE3, and they can quote the Constitution. That's power in the hands of the people. Lady right down front, wait for the mic, please. Hello, thank you. Um, I'm Victoria Bingham. I'm uh, an Army veteran and a local activist. And my question, I think, pertains to the elephant in the room, and that's the upcoming election. I think a lot of us here, it was actually Senator Paul who twice mentioned the Libertarian Party, started out as Republicans. And then we watched the Republican Party disenfranchise the man that we favored, and that was Ron Paul, in an egregious manner. And I think a lot of us are probably sitting here wondering, 
What do you suggest we do in November? Where do you live? Alexandria, Virginia. So I live in Washington, D.C., which means I get to throw away my vote. <laughs> um, and I will write in Ron Paul. Um, if I lived in Virginia, I would vote for Mitt Romney. And the reason I would do that is because of what's going on in the Senate. We are shifting the balance of power away from the executive branch. When you worry about what happened with the Bush administration in the early, in the first year, um, Congress sat there literally and waited for the executive to say, this is HR1. HR1 happened to be a massive expansion of federal involvement in education with Ted Kennedy. This new Senate, this new House, they're not going to do that. So think about it in, in the context of us driving policy from the bottom up. Um, but I don't, I mean, there's, there's no magic bullet here. Um, politics and policy shifts at the margin. There's no simple solution to any of this stuff. Gentleman here on the aisle, in the middle, and then we'll go round again. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I have no affiliation. Um, I would like your opinion on the fact that uh, libertarians have sort of allowed themselves to be placed along the left-right continuum of, of in the in the sense of uh, Democrats and Republicans. And I think that this is, I've always thought that this is, is not a good thing for the libertarians. This idea that, oh, if you're, a, if you're socially liberal and fiscally conservative, that makes you a libertarian. I, I, I submit that you could be socially non-liberal and you could be fiscally you know, uh, uh, you know, conservative I'm liberal, fiscally liberal, I guess it would be, and you could be a libertarian if you believe simply that government shouldn't be making these decisions. And I, my question to you is, politically, why, why is it that no one wants to project libertarians as this way and say, we're not part of the left-right continuum? I, I happen to agree with that definition, and that's why I describe the Tea Party movement as small L libertarian. It's not... Um, there are plenty of social conservatives in the Tea Party movement. You have, on a lot of these other issues other than fiscal issues, you have a, a great diversity of views, and we have one of everybody and everything in our community, but there is, there is a substantial difference. They don't think that the federal government should use its power to dictate those values from the top down, and that's, that's a seismic shift, and to me, that, that's sort of what a libertarian is. Don't, don't let the government tell me what to do. I'm, I'm gonna live my own life as long as I don't hurt, hurt other people, as long as I don't take their stuff. Um, that's what I care about as an individual. Yep. I would think for the most part, you find that uh, people think that if you're socially liberal and fiscally conservative, that roughly makes you a, a libertarian. Certainly, this organization, David Boas, uh, constantly makes that point. Where David's not here, is he? So, um. let's uh, move on. Uh, gentleman right there. Hello, my name is uh, Nick Chidiak. I'm the president of the Federalist Society at uh, George Washington University Law School. <clears throat> Start with a lot of young people, and uh, it's a constant disconnect of friends who putatively reject special interests in terms of being able to grant government privileges, but then um, don't seem to see the problem as big government that's able to make those decisions, but instead criticize uh, free speech. Just kind of curious on your ideas of how to repair that, uh, that disconnect. I don't know. I think it's it's this dichotomy that the last questioner was was referring to because uh, if you look at the uh, Occupy Wall Street, the original Occupy Wall Street, which which I viewed as very much a spontaneous movement similar to the Tea Party movement, there was a bit of cognitive dissonance there because they were hacked off about the bailouts, they were hacked off about crony capitalism, but they were also I, I thought a little confused on questions of individual responsibility because. If you're willing to hold the CEO of uh, Citibank accountable, you should hold yourself accountable as well. Um, I think that's the power 
of, of the millennial generation that has gotten behind Ron Paul. That's the compelling message they hear there. Um, those guys are the future. And we gotta figure out a way that, I think, I think the, the Romney campaign has not done a good job of even talking to these guys. And if anybody that was in Tampa saw that, I think that's a huge mistake. Let me uh, interject a question here in part on behalf of my colleagues. Um, what do you, what's your impression about the Tea Party and how it's going to work out in terms of foreign policy? What are the views there? Do the, you speak of constitutional conservatism? Of course, the real constitutional conservatism sees that uh, reads the Constitution and it says there Congress shall declare have the power to declare war, and we haven't seen that for some time from both parties uh, yeah. actually happening. Yeah, you could. I mean, there was. Uh the one thing that I saw consensus on in foreign policy, and there's very little, and you have everyone from, from Sarah Palin to, to Ron Paul, so you have the entire spectrum of foreign policy views in a crowd. Um, they agreed on Libya, but maybe that was more of a partisan thing. Maybe, maybe it's easier to be angry at a Democratic president who, who violates that, that principle that Congress should declare war. Um, where the consensus is, I believe, is on the understanding that a bankrupt country is not a safe country, and that um, uh, General Mullen said this quite eloquently, the biggest national security threat we have is the national debt. Um, and I will say that we crowdsourced a, a budget proposal that turned out not so different from Senator, Senator Paul's or even his dad's budget, and, and our budget cut a substantial amount out of defense, and that committee, that grassroots committee, was actually run by former military activists. Um, they realized that you can't do everything. And so I think from a fiscal perspective, there's a, perspective, there's, there's a sense of a need for restraint, but there is absolutely no consensus on the philosophy of foreign policy. Gentleman in front. Hi, Mr. Kibbe. I'm uh, Justin Alec, the uh, Youth Outreach Coordinator of the Libertarian Party of Queens County. I'm a student at St. John's University. Uh, according to a, a news report I just received, the Fed announced uh, their launch of QE3 uh, about 10 minutes ago. Uh, when can we expect the, the bust? <laughs> Ludwig von Mises would be the first one to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, and uh, I think uh, this, this has to be politically motivated, right? One more shot of juice just to get us past election day. Um, I'm against it, by the way. <laughs> uh, gentleman right here. My name is Stephen Shaw. What is preventing the Tea Party from becoming an actual political party? That is a great question, and I, I feel quite passionately about that. I think that would be a huge mistake. And I think it's uh, the Tea Party, obviously, is named after the Boston Tea Party. And uh, perhaps purposefully, the media has tried to treat us as if we were a political party because it sort of sounds like it. Um, but it's not that. It's based on a set of ideas. We're not about getting candidates elected. And if you became a political party, you would immediately um, elect party leadership. And you would create a hierarchy, and a hierarchy would start telling people what they could and couldn't do the same way that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party do, does. And we would lose all of the energy that comes from the bottom up. The, the power of this movement is based on the fact that everybody does it voluntarily. Everybody does it because they believe it, not because someone told them to do it. And I think, and, and there's a huge debate about it. Isn't that, isn't that chaotic? I mean, someone needs to get control of this thing. I love it. I love the chaos. I think it's beautiful. More questions? Gentleman right here. Hi, uh, James Velasquez with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Charles Kessler has that uh, new book out, The I Am the Change, uh, book with Barack Obama. And he's saying that this is sort of the last throw of liberalism, right? Um, and and part of part of his, his argument is this idea that the actual, like, the, the the pessimism, cynicism about government's ability to do things, right, is sort of going to start creeping up and actually become politically reflected. Uh, we have the weird aspect that we, we don't believe in government, but we still trust government to do things. Yeah. 
Um, what, how, how, how does this come into your book? You talked a lot about the evolution of society with information, all this diffusing into crowdsourcing, things like that. Uh, can you talk a little more about how that's going to sort of come to the fore in this sort of millennial generation possibly? Yeah, I think that that dichotomy is, ex is exposed very rapidly as people become more empowered with, with information and, and able to find for themselves the, the research and the thinking that sort of fills in the blanks in their own thinking. And I, you know, I, I talk about the, the Hayek rap videos. Um, that's the future, right? Um, people actually being exposed to ideas through popular culture, not just a 40-page white paper, that's the future. And, and all of that empowerment eventually butts up head-to-head -head with uh, the progressive pretense that you hear from the president. I mean, uh, not to sound partisan, but when he, when he does get away from the teleprompter, he lets his stuff slip out. You didn't build that? I mean, that's, he believes that. He believes that the guys that paved the roads are the guys that are responsible for your, your creativity. Um, I don't think America likes that stuff. Let's go to Facebook now and have some questions from people online. Hey, Matt, a question from online. Any news updates on Rule 15? Um, Rule 15, uh, was anyone in Tampa at the Republican convention? This is kind of inside baseball, but it matters a lot um, in the context of everything we're talking about. There was, there was a series of last-minute rules changes that were specifically designed to keep the Ron Paul delegates and the Tea Party delegates in line. And somebody should tell the Romney campaign that there's this thing called Twitter now. And stuff like this gets out there. And there, there was this monumental fight, uh, both inside the Rules Committee that erupted on the floor. And Rule 15 was, uh, was basically flipping the entire process of grassroots electing delegates and uh, delegates electing the candidate and saying, now the candidate can disavow any delegate that doesn't tell the party line. And this isn't, this isn't like a new thing. This, this is the way it's always been done. So this was a radical change. Um, that's, that's been neutered somewhat, but Rule 12 basically gives the Republican chairman a, an opportunity to reconvene the process anytime he wants. So we, we did not win that fight. It's going to go on. But it's that clash, right, between the insiders who used to fix the rules and all of these new constituents who have all this power. Gentleman in the middle there. Pour over. Thank you. Mr. Kibbe, Joe Redden, unaffiliated. I just uh, appreciate your taste in music and want to say that on my truck, I have a Grateful Dead sticker and a Gadsden flag. Awesome. <laughs> By the way, required at our office is you have to read Atlas Shrugged, and if you really want to get somewhere, you should read Human Action, but you have to watch The Big Lebowski, and you have to know at least one dead song. Yeah, I forgot to mention the deadhead part when I introduced him. Uh, other questions? Yes, right there in the middle, in the back, toward the back. Well, my name is Stella Morabito Green. I'm a freelance writer. Um, and uh, one of the issues, which has not been touched on here yet, um, that I've written about uh, in op-eds for the examiner has to do with the issue of same-sex marriage. And uh, I see it as a, uh, and I don't know the extent to which, uh, Mr. Kibbe, you've seen it this way, but as a real invitation to central control by the state. Um, it's, uh, when you consider the fact that the family is uh, really the major buffer zone that we have, really the only real buffer zone uh, between the state and individuals. Um, and the invitation that same-sex marriage gives to things like the most recent, the California law uh, just uh, recently was passed that allows for three-party uh, parenting uh, and basically gives a whole new role to judges to make determinations about uh, really personal associations. I know that you know, I know that Cato would would be loath to, um, you know, really. I'm not sure the extent to which they've looked at this question, 
but uh, you know that that's the light in which I see it. I, I see it very clearly in that light. If you go through history, the isolation and the atomization of individuals vis-a-vis -vis the state. And I'm wondering the extent, I look through the index, I'm sorry, I'm gonna delve into your book, but I, I don't see any mention of family, and I, I know, uh, and you know, those issues. But the question is, the extent to which same-sex marriage could really erode the freedom of personal associations through breakdown of, uh, of recognition by the state of that union. And by the way, I don't believe that uh, uh, marriage itself, if abolished, would lead to anything less than, uh, you know, more erosion of freedom of personal association because I see that as a restraint by the government. Okay, okay thank I'm you. sorry about all that, but to what extent have you explored that issue? Thank well, you. obviously there's no, there is no Tea Party view on this issue to the extent there is, um, there's a real sense of federalism. I noticed that uh, a lot of Tea Partiers when asked say that's not a federal issue, that's a state issue. Um, I also um, have been to a number of tea parties where someone in the audience asked a question like you just did, and uh, even evangelicals have said, that's a really important issue, but that's not why we're here. Um, my own view, I'm gonna trot out a little Hayek here. Um, the institution of the family comes from the bottom up, not the top down. And I wonder why it is, and I have a view that probably upsets everybody, but but why, why does the government license marriage? I don't understand that. Read quickly, please. Of marriage and government restraint. Have you ever considered that when, when the government licenses a marriage, it's really exercising restraint and basically keeping their nose out of that relationship, out of the progeny that results from that relationship. Um, you know, if that, if that goes- Oh, if it, if it were so. Thanks. I mean, the government's not very good at uh, keeping its nose out of things once it sticks its nose under the tent. Other questions, right down here. Um, I'm very impressed with coming here. Um, I live in Virginia Beach. My name is Leslie Jones. Um, I come from a group that um, we've had a constitutional study group that meets every Monday, and we've done it for four years. Um, I belong to Tea Party in our local area, and I did. I was held hostage on a bus down in Tampa. So anyway, I just want to know your uh, your your uh, feelings about um, the information reformation we've gone through that I call it our Gutenberg moment, um, that CISPA keeps re rearing its ugly head over and over again, and what are your, um, your opinion on that? Could you, you re-ask the second half of that question? <laughs> I, I, di I didn't quite understand, please. That CISPA, the, where they keep trying to, um, the, the government keeps trying to rein in our, our access to knowledge, and that um, what is your opinion on the fact that the government continues, even though we've shot it down, they keep bringing it, resurrecting it back over and over again. You're referring to the SOPA and PIPA. Right, exactly. Okay, got it. Um, by the way, um, she refers to, this is important, and Morton Blackwell was a champion on this, fighting these rules fights, but, but literally, for you guys that don't know this story, somehow or another, the buses with delegates who were fighting the Romney lawyers missed the meeting where they were going to vote because the buses got lost. Isn't that, isn't that cool? I don't know how that happened. Um, I talk about this extensively in my book, and I, I think it's fascinating. I think the fact that uh, big Hollywood and uh, big Internet were unable to jam through this stuff shows you just how much politics and political dis decision making is disintermediated, and I think it. I think it suggests that they're they're going to keep coming back because they want to fix the game. They want to fix the rules, and there's a there's a collusion between the corporate interests that want to fix the rules and the government that would love to control your speech. Um, we have to stay vigilant. Uh, the woman in the middle had her hand up earlier, so please. Chevy, Chevy Chase, Maryland. 
Um, what is your, or the Tea Party's position on illegal immigration? Uh, just as an example, let me explain. Uh, Montgomery County um, has a huge uh, illegal immigrant population and our school system is just swamped uh, with illegals. And I have nothing personally against them or anything, but I mean, legal is legal and illegal is illegal. That's my understanding of the law. There are procedures for coming in legally. Yeah. So yeah. if you could just talk about that a it's, minute. It's a, it's a great question, and there's, it's, it's, a, it's a social issue where I don't think there is a consensus with the Tea Party. I, I recently got hotboxed on Geraldo on this issue, and I think he was trying to embarrass me to somehow demonstrate that, that Tea Partiers were inhuman on these issues. And I think there's two, there's two rules here, and there's, there's an economic... Uh, there's an economic solution. The two rules that are fundamental to the Tea Party ethos is that everybody gets treated just like everybody else, meaning that, that you follow the rules. Um, the other principle is if you want to come to this country and you want to work and you want to follow the rules, we want you. And I think that, that those are what I believe would be consensus opinions if you got all the special interests out of the process, the unions being, frankly, the biggest problem. Um, you could you could get to that consensus. Um, I, I think uh, there there seems to be a gravitation amongst Tea Partiers to rationalize the the guest worker process so that people that do identify jobs can come and and do those jobs. Question in the very back. A great opportunity to ask a person who is directly involved and has been for some time with the Tea Party. Fantastic. Uh, I'm fond of saying that the houses where bad ideas are born and the senators where good ideas go to die. Um, even if the Tea Party were to be able to build a Republican majority centered around people with ideas like uh, Senator Paul's and Senator Mike Lee's, uh, I guess my question is, with all the procedural difficulties in the Senate, how would you deal with a Democratic minority that would attempt to block a lot of efforts to change things? Unfortunately, one of the erosions of uh, restraint on the Senate has been the increased use of the budget reconciliation process to jam stuff through. That's how they passed Obamacare. Only requires 51 votes. Um, I think you will see the next Senate, there's no going back. You can't restore what was an informal understanding. Um, they will use budget reconciliation to repeal Obamacare. They will use budget reconciliation to attempt to balance the budget. Um, in this last Senate, you had no less than four or five serious balanced budget proposals. One of them came from Senator Paul. One of them came from Pat Toomey, Mike Lee, I'm forgetting who else. Um, you've never had that kind of legislative entrepreneurship coming out of the Senate in my lifetime. That's different. Gentlemen, also in the back. <coughs> There was a question a little while ago about same-sex marriage, and you pointed out that the Tea Party view is this is not a federal question. But one's commitment to something being a state issue is measured by one's willingness to respect the decisions of states that go the way you don't like. Mm -hmm. And so what I would like to ask is, do those states, I'm sorry, do those members of the Tea Party who consider themselves social conservatives as well as Tea Partiers, support the principle that the federal government ought to recognize those same-sex marriages that are licensed under the laws of those states that do decide to have same-sex marriage? I don't know. I don't know. I've never, I've never, literally never been in a discussion with any Tea Partier on that question. Um, I would have to think about it. We should talk afterwards because it's an interesting question. I can only interpolate here that David Kirby, who's with us today, and my colleague uh, Emily Eakins have just now, you may have seen it outside, produced an interesting, important new study on the views um, of uh, Tea Party-affiliated uh, people. And uh, it's, it's surprising. There, it's, it's, well, you'll have to read it to see about the social conservatism. Uh, but it's very interesting. Gentleman right behind you in the back there. 
Bruce Alkin, unaffiliated. Uh, some of the things that have come up raise questions in my mind, uh, piggybacking on the last gentleman. Uh, I'm not sure what the federal government uh, would consider in doing an immigration uh, paperwork on a same-sex marriage in terms of would one of the spouses be able to sponsor the other half. And also on your comments, sir, on uh, f the government not regulating marriage, uh, if we do that, what happens to polygamy? I don't know. All I know is that when I tried to convince my wife in 1986 <laughs> that getting a marriage license was a degrading of our personal relationship, I lost that conversation. <laughs> Lady right down here, three in. Molly Bomer-Cato, um, Democrats recently scrubbed civil liberties from their platform, um, probably because Obama has reversed his stance from 2008. Who do you see uh, taking on these issues in the future? I think it's a Nixon goes to China thing. Um, I d I've never thought that civil liberties were consistent with an aggressively progressive mindset because it's always about telling people what to do. And uh, eventually on a lot of these civil liberties issues, I, I see the, and, and brace yourself for this, I see the Republican Party as your future. Don't freak out. Well, that's just, I mean, that makes sense of an underlying sort of idealistic progressivism is not consistent with that. Gentleman on the aisle. Of course, it assumes that the Republican Party is not a progressive party. Uh, Rick from Fairfax. Um, you're pretty excited about the internet, but according to a Rasmussen poll, most people are still getting their quote-unquote political news from television. You talk to the big money boys, I'm sure, the Cokes and all those guys. Can't you guys get some better programming on cable? <laughs> Seriously, I'm, I'm being serious. Um, half of the voters are gonna go into this election just like last election and just not know some of the most basic information. I don't, I don't even wanna go down the list. I've, I've, I've talked about it before level of spending, regulations, it's off the charts. They have myths. There's probably like 10 or 15 like major myths that the average voter has. You don't need all the examples, but can't we on ad-supported cable give the most basic information to people? At least, you know, <laughs> it's step one, two, and three. As far as non-ad-supported cable, C-SPAN, what, you know, what I've noticed, being here for a few years, I look on the daybook calendar every day, and there's really not, like the, 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 the non-profit, the, 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 um, the paradigm for a typical event is more of a top-down, you know, non-profit type thing. I think we need more of like a citizen forum and on a regular basis. For example, I've been asking a lot of people is, where can I get space if I wanted to initiate a citizen forum in this town? It's almost like impossible. No one has helped me. It's, it's a very top-down city. And we could at least, as a first step, address that, possibly through you know trying to get C-SPAN to cover something like that. Most voters in this country are fiscally con conservative. So if you brought in a randomly selected population 33, 33, and 33, Democrat, Republican, and Independent, most of those people are going to be fiscally conservative. The, the common man is left out of the whole discussion. Thank you. Well, let me, um, that was a long question. Let me, let me address one aspect, because I think this is important to understand. If, if I think about things, I'm an economist by training, so I think about things in terms of uh, um, sort of a Hayekian understanding of how things work, and Politics is always one at the margin. And actually, because I'm a weirdo, I quote Carl Menger in my book and apply the, the Mengerian understanding of, of subjective value to politics. Politics is at the margin, which is a, is a fancy way of saying this, this election is going to be about turnout. And people in the middle, there aren't that many. And the people that you talk 
talk about who don't really know what the issues are. That's not who matters. It matters who bothers to actually show up on election day in a very small number of states. So it's all about energy. It's all about door to door. Um, I will post on our Facebook page a great article that I just read that argues that Facebook is a swing voter in this election because basically what they're saying is that individuals who are motivated are getting the information they need and it depends who wins them in this election. Well, on that note, I think we'll uh, come to a conclusion today's uh, book forum. Again, our book has been Hostile Takeover by Matt Kibbe. We have uh, copies for purchase, and I'm sure Matt would love to continue talking about the book and also be willing to sign your copy as we go upstairs. Uh, we're going to have lunch now, and this will be on the second floor of Cato in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which you just go back to the front and go up the spiral staircase. This is, if you haven't been here for a while, this is uh, part of our new arrangement. Uh, as you go up there, uh, the restrooms on the second floor are on the way to lunch. You have to look for the yellow wall, which is a little strange, but look for it. You should find it. Uh, but meanwhile, I'd like to thank uh, Matt Kibbe for coming today and and congratulate him on an excellent book and an excellent presentation.